Welcome to Way Family Church. You're listening to our sermon podcast. Way Family Church is a new church plant in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 1030 for worship, the word, and fellowship. If you'd like more information, visit us online at wayfamily.church. Now, as I mentioned 21 years ago this day, if you could just remember where you were, I remember where I was. Um, I was getting ready to go into history class. I was walking into history class and it was a little bit different because all of the TVs were on in every classroom and there was this weird silence in the schools. You know, hallways are usually loud, lockers banging everywhere. There's this weird silence and we get into this classroom and we're watching the news and there's this really tall building just in smoke. And I remember sitting there really confused, wondering what is going on here, you know? Why is this so different? Why are we uh, so quiet and so reverent in this moment? You know, it was something that was hard for me to understand. It had just been announced that a passenger airplane had crashed into one of the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York. Now at this time, I didn't even know what that was. You know, at this time I was completely ignorant to the World Trade Center and I had seen pictures of the twin towers and so I didn't realize the gravity of this issue. And so I remember class just being focused on what was going on in the news. After all, we were in history class, and this was history in the making, right? And I remember being somewhat just confused and trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen next? Because the bell rang and nobody moved. It was just eerie. It was different, if you remember where you were that day. And then soon after, a second plane hit another tower, the other tower. That's when it got really weird. Right, <clears throat> excuse me. And it was then that we learned that the, the country that we so love, America, was under attack. And when we heard that, I remember in my school, people, some people kind of turned into a frenzy and they were worried, they were a little concerned about the safety of this nation and they were wondering, wait a second, are we being attacked from within, right? Is this something that we need to be concerned about? Are we currently in danger? And I remember um, everyone, kind of just looking for someone to embrace that morning, right? There was people just kind of getting together and just holding to one another. And everything that we knew at school that day was everything but normal. Instead, there was friends holding each other, praying. There were people making phone calls, family members calling everybody, just crying. We had uh, learned that there was people who knew uh, or, or had family in New York that were crying. And it was just this very interesting moment where people were just embracing one another. And, and if you remember those days, like never before, I witnessed something very special. The United States of America came together. The United States of America really embraced one another. They realized that, hey, we're all in this together. And everyone took it personal to a degree, right? It wasn't America versus Americans like what we see today, right? It was America United. And it was such a beautiful thing because in that moment, chaos could have just gone crazy, right? People could have just gone crazy and in a frenzy, but instead people came together. And I remember having days of prayer. I remember people getting together at the flagpole and praying and just asking the Lord to be with us as we um, experience these sequence of events that was just so bizarre. 
And so everything continued to unfold and then we realized, okay, it wasn't just the Twin Towers, it was also the Pentagon, there was also another failed attempt. And so what's going on? And so those who typically didn't pray, prayed, right? Those who typically didn't go to a church, they gathered and churches were full. And there was this really tangible unity in our country, in our cities, in our home, right? Everywhere that we went, you looked at someone and you could see just the dignity of life. And you could honor that person just for having life, right? Remember those days? What's amazing to me is how a tragic event can do that. How a tragic and hard event has the ability to bring people together. And so that to me answers the question as to why does God allow such things in this world sometimes? Why does God allow us to go through hard times? Why does God allow us to go through trial and tribulation? Maybe it's for our good, you know, and sometimes that's the last thing that we consider. Why are we going through this? Why are we uh, to experience the thing that we are? Maybe it's designed to bring us together. Maybe it's designed to get us to our knees and so that we can remember our creator. Because sometimes when we have it so good, it's very easy to forget who God is and who we are. And so this I thought was super interesting that today we're remembering 9-11, right? And then when we continue our study in 1 Peter, by the way, we're in 1 Peter. Welcome if it's your first time here. We run through the Bible. We take a book. We start chapter 1, verse 1, and we go through it. Well, our goal is to look, to, to look at the Bible as a whole and not just holes out of the Bible, right? And today, we just so happened to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And we're going to be looking at verse 8 all the way through 22. And this one's focused more for righteousness sake. Um, for righteousness sake. And it, it, was, it was bizarre almost in a sense because as I'm remembering, okay, 9-11... And then I read this passage, and it's all about being united, being willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, being willing, willing to go through times of trial and tribulation and persecution, being able to recognize that this is not necessarily the end, but this is just something temporary, something that we need to go through, and perhaps for our benefit, our good, and the glory of God. And so I love the way that this is just coming together. It's just so perfect for the day and the season that we're in right now. And so Peter speaks to this in this next portion, coming together in times of trial, coming together in times of tribulation. And so let's just recap really quickly what we've seen so far, and we'll catch you up to, sleep, uh, up to speed. <clears throat> in chapter 1 and in the, in the first two chapters, Peter writes this letter to the exiled Christians who were under threat by the Roman government. The Roman Empire is beginning to persecute Christians like never before. And so Peter's writing to them to exhort them, to encourage them, to give them almost a pep talk because these are hard times. Christians don't understand why they're going through some of what they're going through, and they're not necessarily responding the way that you would think is godly. And so Peter writes to them, he exhorts them, he tells them, hey, we ought to just be together, not be bogged down by the problems that we have today, but to look forward to the living hope that is in Jesus Christ. And then we're reminded that sufferings of this world are only a little while compared to eternal glory. And then I've, show, I've, I've tried to share with you, so if 
you don't have an image, you know, in your mind, some, uh, an, uh, uh, the ability to perceive how long eternity is, eternity is a very long time. I can't even show you the end of that. And so if eternity, if eternity continues forever, that means that the present life that we have gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the degree where everything and anything that we are here at the end of the day is so little, so minuscule compared to eternity. For eternity is a long time. And this is what Peter's wanting us to focus on. Hey, focus on the things ahead because this life is so temporary, so short. This is not where you're going to be most satisfied, right? And so he goes on and he, uh, he gets very practical with those who are reading this letter. Remember, this was a letter that was meant to be passed on, okay, from, uh, from region to region. And so he gives them very practical, uh, let's say, uh, instructions on how to live in a way that's God-honoring. And he calls Christians to be ready for action. If you remember, he says, gird up the loins of your mind and prepare for actions. Why? Because when we're in a state of trial or tribulation, when we're in a state of attack, let's say, whatever it is that's hitting us, it is very easy for us to just curl up in a corner and wait for it to pass and just, just hope that this ends soon. Because sometimes we don't have the answers for, for how to respond to life's uh, trials. And so he says, prepare for action. This is not a time to curl up in a ball. This is the time to, uh, uh, to express the grace of God in our lives. This is the time to make a difference. This is the time to be salt and light in this world as Jesus had commanded uh, previously. And so he, he continues and he says, be holy, which is a tall order if you think about it. Be holy. That means to be set apart, not just positionally, but practically. And the things that you do, how you live your life, do it in a way that's God honoring, do it in a way that is set apart for the glory of God. And then he continues uh, with more instructions. And then he says the big controversial word, word, be submissive. Oh, man. You know, we don't like to hear that. But he says, be submissive to governing authorities. Be submissive to your masters, which is equivalent to our employers, okay? For those who we work for, be submissive to that, meaning that you're humbling yourself. You're acknowledging them as someone who is higher ranked, all right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're inferior. That's just what we ought to do because Christ was an example for us in that regard. He served and was not served, right? He was willing to give himself up for the, for the benefit of others and not necessarily to sit on a throne and have people wave fans at him. So be submissive to governing authorities, he says. And then he gets a little bit more personal. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, honor your wives, right? Be because Christ also did this. He gave himself up for the church. And so we talked last week, hey, if we're taking this, this passage here, this book as a whole, he, Peter's talking about how important it is to be submissive to one another just as Christians, just as God-fearing men and women, right? We ought to consider others more significant than ourselves. And so if you're a wife and you're told to be submissive to your husband, well, we're already told to be submissive to one another anyway. So it's not like a personal attack to a wife. And then it goes on in verse 7 and says, therefore, husbands also. You know, so this doesn't mean that husbands don't have to love our wives and also be compliant to their wishes and their needs, right? We have to honor them. We have to understand them. And so see, Peter's being very practical to a degree where if you really consider what he's saying, this isn't, this isn't a piece of cake. 
This is a hard thing to do because we live in the flesh, right? And everything within us wants to do whatever we can get for ourselves. You know, we want to get revenge where, when revenge is, is, ooh, it just stews up in our hearts sometimes, right? We want to get back at people. We don't want to be submissive. We want to stick it to the man, especially in the culture that we live in. It's so easy to have that type of attitude. And then he continues, Peter continues, in that stream of thought, talking about how we can relate to each other as members of one body. We are the body of Christ. All of us have different giftings for different reasons, but ultimately for the glory of God. So with that said, let's continue to read. uh, Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 22. And it says this, Finally, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are opened to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason or for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, for, this, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you have given this to us, Father, to be able to be uh, challenged, grown, corrected, encouraged, built up, Father, to be more like you. So help us understand this. Help us retain this, Lord Jesus, that we may live it out for your glory. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to break this into three different sections today. I hope that you remember them this way. The first section focuses on doing good. So do good. The second part is going to focus on honoring Christ which is uh, 
in a court, like we're doing good as an honor for Christ, right? As a, as a way to honor Christ. And then finally, we have Christ is our example. So this is interesting. You've heard that the best way to lead is by example, right? Um, it's, it's beautiful that as Christians, we have Christ who was willing to just do it all, right? And so we have no excuse for the things that we're called to do because Christ, our example, did it well and did it in a way that was uh, doable for us as well. And so let's, let's go to that first section, doing good. That's verse 8 through 12. In verses 8 through 12, Peter calls his reader to inherit a blessing through unity, love, and upright conduct and to repay evil with good blast, right? How can I repay evil with good? That's not fair, you might think. And you know, this is interesting because, again, these people are currently going through tribulation. They're, they're currently going through persecution. So if you can just imagine this attitude like we experienced at 9-11, people were coming together, embracing one another. Hey, be united here. It's a very important. He says, have unity of mind. You know, in English, this comes across as a very commanding thing to do, like have unity in mind or agree with one another, right? But that's not necessarily what Peter is saying. And the Greek, if you translate, if you break it down, it's more of a declaration. He's declaring something like, hey, all of you who already are united in mind, in mind you already have something in common, right? Use that. Think on that. Focus on that. For it's easy for us to point out the differences between us and others, right? We can say, hey, you don't agree with me in this particular place or case, right? Hey, you're different with me in, the, in this regard, and so therefore we shouldn't fellowship. But what Peter's saying is, hey, focus on the things that have brought us together, and ultimately that's the blood of Jesus Christ, right? And the fact that we're together, we're walking through these times together. You know, we're not alone. God has given us one another. And so have that unity in mind, right? In other words, don't be argumentative. Look for ways to connect with one another, not to, uh, to debate one another, although debate sometimes is fun, right, if you're, you're a debater. But ultimately, it should be for the purpose of being united, of coming together. And so he says, finally, all of you, finally in regards to being subject, subject to other people, right, as exemplified through Christ, all of you, no one is excluded have unity of mind, have sympathy. What is it to have sympathy? That's to have common feeling with another person. It means that you are susceptible of being affected by the feelings of another person, right? That means that if you're feeling down, I'm going to feel that too. If you're feeling like, man, you're, you're going through a hard time, I feel you, I'm with you. So I'm going to respond in a way that's caring, compassionate, right? So have, be sympathetic, have brotherly love. That is to have affection for another person as you would a family member. It's that simple. Or, or a brother or sister, you know, just someone that you care for. Care for one another as you do family. Have a tender heart. I would say that a better translation for this section would be compassion. Be compassionate is what he's saying. That means really consider the other person. Don't just feel them, but then show it. Maybe you can do something for that person. Maybe you can definitely put yourself there. You know, one of the hardest things for me to do is be com to be compassionate in a way that's uh, showable when someone's really hurting. Because I tend to be someone who likes to dwell in the clouds, very optimistic. I like to feel good. I don't like it down here. You know what I mean? But sometimes just being able to sit next to someone who's hurting goes a long way. You know, you don't even have to say anything. You just have to be there. Be compassionate. 
put yourself aside and look into the interests of others. You know, let's be united in this way because life, if you didn't know this, life is hard. Life throws a lot of curveballs at us. Life throws a lot of things that just are gut-wrenching, right? And it, and it really causes us to want to quit. But have a tender heart, be compassionate. And then he says, and a humble mind. That is to be lowly, as in opposed to lofty greatness, to be modest, to be meek, to be submissive. It's a deep sense of unworthiness in the sight of God. Think about that. That means that you're acknowledging the greatness of God and going in accordance to what all he has said. You know, be humble, meaning be submissive to those who are authorities over you. You know, be caring to one another. Don't consider yourself higher or more supreme than you ought to because you're not at the end of the day. You're a creation, right? Can the vase say to the, 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 the potter, hey, make me a certain way. Make me bigger so that I'm bigger than you. No, right? We are God's creation, so let's remember the, the holiness of God and be humble, have a humble mind. And then he goes on and he's saying, do not repay. He says specifically, do not repay evil for evil. Now, if you're really thinking about this, Peter's probably acknowledging something that they're already experiencing. He didn't just say this out of the blue. The readers here are probably experiencing evil against them. They're, they're probably experiencing being reviled by others, okay? He says, do not repay evil for evil, because that's the opposite of being holy. He just got done talking to us about being holy and submissive. So if we are uh, treated with evilness, you know, to repay it, then we have by default not been holy. Does that make sense? We have not been submissive in a way that's God-honoring. We have been just like the evildoers, which is so unchristian-like, for Jesus himself did not repay evil with evil. He did not revile when he was reviled. Amen? And he says, be holy. Just underline that, chapter 215, be holy. That's what we're called to do, to be set apart, to be different. And not just don't pay them back for what you think they deserve, right? But on the contrary, he says, bless them. Okay, well, now you're getting real complicated here. Now you're asking too much. It's one thing to not revile against someone who reviles us or to do evil in return. It's one thing. But now you want me to go out of my way and bless them? Why? Why would you make me want to do? Why would I do that? If that person has hatred for me, it's very easy to hate someone back. You know what I mean? It's very easy to reciprocate feelings. It's very easy to be friendly for, to those who are friendly to you. But those who give you that weird stare, trust me, you roll your eyes right back at them. It's very easy to do that. But he says, don't revile them. Don't, don't return evil. Bless them. For this is what you were called to do. This is what we were created. This is what it's like to have the image of Christ, to be little Christ, to be Christian. Bless them for this is what we're called to do, that we may obtain a blessing. So Jesus, while speaking about how we ought to love our enemies, remember Jesus really hyper-focused on loving our enemies, on doing what's good, doing what's um, uh, God-honoring above all things. Like, for example, Luke chapter 6, 28, Jesus says this, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's really hard to do. You think about that. And yet Jesus is saying this. Why? Because this is exactly what he's doing. 
Think about how we treat Jesus sometimes. Think about how little we make of him, how we really impose our will on him sometimes. And we want him to do what we want him to do. And we make so little of him. And he says, bless them. Remember when he was on the cross, one of the seven sayings, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Remember that? And then Paul says as, as well in Romans 12, 14, he mentions this uh, as a mark of a true Christian. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Wow. That's a tall order, guys, right? But nevertheless, if we're going to be holy, if we're going to be set apart, this is what we ought to do. And we need to practice this. And uh, the more we do it, I think the, the easier it becomes like anything else. And then Peter goes on in verse 10, and he references from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And this is essentially what that psalm says. This is a prescription from Psalm, okay? And he says this, Whoever desires to love life, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it and do good. If you're hoping for good days ahead of you, if you're hoping to be able to enjoy life here and there, right? If you're hoping to not have enemies, do good. Do good. You know, it's hard for someone who has an evil nature to do good. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? And our goodness is, is just something that happens through us by Jesus, right? It is him who we are displaying, not us. Our goodness is like dirt compared to the goodness of God. But do good. Treat others well. Doing what he has called us to do is a good thing. And goodness is marked by the words of Jesus Christ and the example that he he has been for us as well. And so do good, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But this is just a recipe that we have here. Do good, so that the Lord is inclined to us, right? It's interesting how he responds to those who, who, who represent him well. And I, and I love that. And this is something that we need to just really keep in mind, is seek peace, pursue it. The Lord is honored by that. He notices that, regardless of whether or not it causes you to suffer in any way, shape, or form. And then it continues. The second part is to honor Christ, verse 13 through 17. And it says this, Now, who is there to harm you or mistreat you if you are zealous for what is good, if you're something or someone who likes to do good, no one's going to really hate you for that. <laughs> you know, I guess there's some people who think goody two-shoes are a little, you know, annoying. But ultimately, you can't get in trouble for doing good. You shouldn't, right? What, who's going to harm you for that? And then 14, but even if you should suffer, so you notice here there's no guarantee to not suffer, even if you do good. So even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, for righteousness' sake, underline that, you will be blessed. It says, don't be afraid, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You know, um, because at the end of the day, the Lord's going to see that, compensate you for that. There's something that you can lean on for that. But have no fear. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Just honor Christ. Just everything that you go through, everything that you do, just honor Christ. Think of him. Focus on him. Remember what his will is for you. 
honor him in everything that you do. And then he goes into something very important. He says, always being prepared to make a defense. Hmm, we've, we've referenced this passage before, but what is it saying here? Well, first of all, that word defense in the Greek is apologia. We get the word apologetics from there, right? Be ready to make a defense. How many of you guys can say, yeah, I'm ready, coach, put me in. I know why I'm a Christian and I can tell you clearly and confidently, right? Who can say that? Sometimes we think, yeah, I know. Yeah, but when the rubber hits the road, you're like, um, you see, uh, we have to be always prepared to make that defense, that apologetic defense, you know, in other words, to be able to explain what, why it is that we believe what we believe. I would like to point out something here. If you're familiar with apologetics, then you, uh, you, you know that it involves a fair amount of philosoph philosophical argumentation, right? Sometimes philosophy helps you um, make a defense for what, what you believe. It, it also involves a fair amount of presenting evidences for the Christian faith and for how it's rational and logical. It's not just a blind faith. It's not just something, hey, this is what this book says, so just believe it and go with it. There's a lot to it. There's a lot of historical uh, confirmations, archaeological uh, confirmations. You know, there's a lot of evidence for what this is, what this is saying. And so, you know, it requires philosophy, it requires uh, logic, it requires things like that to really make a good defense. You know, it, it can it require all of that. And all of that is good. However, in the context here, Peter's saying that when people see your willingness to suffer or be treated unfairly, and when they see that you're still treating them with respect and you're doing good, and when they ask you why you do good, that's when you make your defense. So we shouldn't come at people with philosophy, with arguments, right? With, with historical evidence or archaeological evidence. We shouldn't come to them like, this is why you should believe, right? No, no, no. In the context that we have here is when they see why you behave the way that you do, and then when they ask you about it, then tell them. Yeah. And, and then and there's, a, there's a little caveat for that. Don't just tell them, right? It says, it says, always be prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Trust me, I've had people get really heated because they're, they're really confident with their own arguments. Like they know why they believe, you know? And so they shame the other person for not getting it. Like, bro, this is enough evidence. What's wrong with you? Are you an idiot? Are you just not comprehending here? I, we've seen that. People get a little aggressive because of their approach. But this is what Peter's saying. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you give a defense. You explain why you do what you're doing. But do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Because this is what honors the Lord. And 16 says, having a good conscience conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame see God will take care of that and then we'll continue on the final portion of this and it's uh, Christ is our example verse 18 through 22 and so in this section we see uh, one of the richest and clearest and briefest New Testament summaries of the work of Christ this is like the gospel in one sentence and it's beautiful and if we can remember this, and if we can try to understand this, it's going to do us well, all right? Theologians describe the heart of the gospel as, here's, here's, a fancy, here's some fancy theological words, penal substitutionary atonement, all right? We're going to break it down, but this is what we see here, and that's ultimately what the gospel is. 
And so what does that mean? Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. That's the penal part, all right? And as a substitute in our place, that's the substitutionary. There's a penalty. Jesus is our substitute. To undo the effects of sins and we're restored to God. That's atonement. All right, that's the gospel. Think about it. It's penalty. Jesus paid it. We're restored to glory. That's the gospel. And so that's what we see here. So let me, let me show you this. Let's read verse 18. For Christ also suffered once, which was sufficient. Underline that. He suffered once for sins. That's the penal, the punishment right there. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's the substitution. Do you see that? And that he might bring us to God. That's the atonement. So we have a very concise explanation of what the gospel is here. Being put to death, this is how it happened, in the flesh. That means that Jesus literally had a body and he was killed, in fact, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirit in, in, in its prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. No, now this is a very confusing passage, and I'm going to be honest with you. This is one that required a little, a little time, um, and I confess that it's not very easy to understand, and there's so many interpretations of what this might mean or say, but I will say this, that I don't think that there's a better explanation than what I'm going to share with you today. I believe that what's happening here is first that Christ is being... Uh, that Christ being alive, so his body was put to death, but his spirit was alive, that he went and proclaimed to the dead in the place of the dead, hell or the grave, that he goes and proclaims his victory over death. Because prior to Christ, you know, a Messiah was proclaimed, but they never saw that. And so at this moment, Jesus goes and he proclaims his victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting, Right? And, he, and so that everyone would know that Jesus is Lord, all right? And he goes and he does this because, it, and, it, and, and this is the explanation that it has. This is why it makes sense to me, because it says in 20, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is only eight persons, that means that in the days of Noah, while they mocked him for building this big boat, God was trying to reach them right through Noah and his sons, I'm sure that they, they all testified to what was going to happen. The judgment is coming, you know? But it says that only eight of them actually heard it. Only eight of them actually listened. What does that say? It means we're not listening. We're not taking this seriously, maybe, right? And then he goes on in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. Is Peter saying that baptism saves us? Kind of sounds like that, right? No, he's not. Let's read the rest. Now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So Noah and his family were not saved by the means of water, were they? In fact, water was what cleansed the earth of its sin. They were saved through the ark. That was the God's agent of saving the family. So the ark was the means of preserving not just Noah's life and his family, but all life, really. Think about it. And so it's like baptism in that when we, ba we are baptized, we make a public declaration of an inward conviction or change, right? The, it's, a, it's symbolic to the water washing. 
It's a washing, you know, as, as Christ has washed our sin away and we are made new, our, we are reborn, we are born again to this new life. And this is the imagery that Peter is using. It says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is, check this out, we see the glory of God now. Everything that Jesus did, <laughs> wait, who are we serving? Who is it that we're submitting to? Who is it that we're honoring? He has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God. And now with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All in all, everything, everything that we see, everything that even we submit to authorities and masters, etc., everything at the end of the day is subjected to him. And there's nothing greater, no one more mighty, more powerful, more worthy of honor and praise. This is Jesus who was in the beginning. And through him, everything that has been made has been made. Amen? And so, for righteousness sake, for righteousness sake, let's unite. Let's get together. When things get tough, bring it in, right? Take away number one. The good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. Do good. Guys, this is hard to do good. It's like when you eat good. You know what I mean? It's hard to eat good. It's all nasty. The stuff that hurts you, the, good, the, the tasty stuff, that, that really is the, one, the stuff that destroys your body, right? But do good. It's hard. The good life is the hard life of trusting Christ. The Gospels have promised an unfathomable inheritance. Just cling to that. Remember that. We have to endure the hard things here. We're not promised to have it easy. We're not promised blessing after blessing after blessing. We are promised a blessing, but we're not promised to not have any kind of trial or suffering, any kind of conflict here. And so as Paul says in Romans 8.18, for I consider that my sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I love this. I saw this illustration. I'm going to share it with you. So as we await on the eternal glory, that, if we think about what's, what's ahead of us, the hardships of this life, though genuinely painful, ultimately have the significance of a scratch on the penny of a millionaire. That's the comparison. Millionaire, penny, scratch, didn't even notice it. Compared, you know, to what's ahead of us in eternity and glory. Takeaway number two. Our calling is to honor Christ, the Lord as holy. That's our calling. That's what we ought to do ultimately. This should be our primary commitment. Everything else, secondary. Our primary commitment to honor God. So that means when defending our faith, honor Christ. All right? When we're evangelizing, talking to other people, honor Christ. With gentleness and respect, because that's honoring to Christ. You know, he does word, honor Christ in that way. Know his word, live it. If he's, um, if, if, he, if he's willing to suffer, think about it. We ought to be willing to suffer as well. That's honoring to Christ. And then finally, takeaway three. We are restored to God by the gospel of grace. It's all grace. It's not the result of works. You literally can't do anything to be in better standing with Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do. Grace is 100% in this situation. We can, we can demonstrate the fruit of that. We can love others by doing good, but that's not what saves us, right? It is all grace. Let's read this together, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, all together. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for these practical instructions, Lord, because sometimes we wonder, Lord, what is your will for us? How should I behave? What should I do in this case? Well, it's right here, and thank you for that. And we just ask, Father, that you would help us actually live this out in a way that is honoring to you for righteousness' sake. For what good is it if we're beat for something evil that we've done? We've deserved that. Lord, just help us be more like you in that you were willing to suffer even though you were totally blameless and innocent. And Lord, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of whether or not we're attacked by foreign enemies or even by our culture or just our neighbors, Lord Jesus, as believers, as those who are redeemed, Lord, help us be united like never before. Help us consider not our differences, but the gospel of grace that brings us together, that we would be a a single unit, Lord Jesus, just functioning for your glory. And Lord, we just love you. We thank you for your word today. We thank you that it will not go void, Lord, and you will absolutely do something to move us into action. I just trust you, Lord Jesus, and I believe you, Father. In your mighty name we pray, amen and amen.